Welcome to the Data Bytes podcast brought to you by Women in Data. My name is Sadie St. Lawrence, and it's my pleasure to be your host for these weekly interviews where we share inspiring stories, thought leaderships, and discussions to help you excel in your data career. At Women in Data, our mission is to increase diversity in data careers, and we do this through awareness, education, and empowerment. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Rob Colley, founder and CEO of P3 Adaptive. Prior to his work at P3, Rob was a senior program manager for Microsoft and worked on products such as Excel, Power Pivot, and more. In this episode, we discuss the love-hate relationship with Excel, how to find the data gene in individuals at your organization, and how to become a super Power BI user. In addition, Rob shares how he continually is learning and updating policies to create a more inclusive working environment at P3, and Rob brings his authentic self to this conversation. I think you'll find his stories engaging and insightful, and I know we all will have something to learn from this conversation. Enjoy. Rob, welcome to the Data Bytes podcast. So happy to be doing this podcast swap with you, and I'm feeling a little bit of the pressure because we had such a great conversation, or at least I did, being a guest on your show. And so really appreciate you taking the time to come and be a guest on the Data Bytes podcast today. Well, I mean, the pressure is mutual, right? Like we had we had a really good show. Uh, so let's see if we can run it back in reverse. Uh, no, I really, really appreciate you having me on. This is great. Well, if not, you know, I'll just point people over to your podcast in that episode and, and we'll make it work. But I have we've, a feeling we've got that we've got that fallback. Yes. Yeah, you know, no pressure. The pressure is off today. So That's right. okay. I want to dive in because last time we talked, we talked a lot about my journey and starting women in data and what that was like. But you also have a founder's journey. And to me, like founder's journeys are one of the most inspiring and exciting stories. So take us back to how it started. Did it start in childhood? Yeah. Were you always an entrepreneur? Did you love dashboards no. from a child? <laughs> what happened no. here? No, I... I um I was always a nerd for sure, uh, and like not the cool kind either, right? Like you know, like the <laughs> like the classic '80s, you know, uh, you know, uh, put upon, bullied nerd, that that kind of nerd. Um, so always very much into you know math and science and all that kind of stuff, but um, never had any any real direction. Uh, <laughs> like not an ambitious kid, um, and uh, I just kind of went where the system sent me uh or where i felt like you know i could i could derive some like enjoyment essentially and um <clears throat> so anyway i went to college i did i did a computer science degree uh it was really cool the um that program allowed a lot of flexibility so i picked up a philosophy major along along the way and enjoyed that a lot more than i enjoyed the the computer science stuff um and uh went to microsoft um not because i had some ambition of being a software engineer. It was just sort of like the best job uh, that I that I interviewed for <laughs> out of college. Um, I had debated grad school, but got to the front of the line for like the whatever the graduate tests are, and uh, and my checkbook was empty. I didn't have any more checks left. My, well, it wasn't wasn't meant to be. So I'll just go get a job. It shows you how sort of you know driven. Um, at Microsoft, um, I ended up working mostly on Excel. And even that was an accident. Like there was at one point in time where I told a manager at Microsoft before I went to work on Excel that like going to work on something like Excel, I, I told this 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 person um, 
I would never, for example, I would never go to work on something like Excel. Like it was so beneath me, like in my, in my youthful arrogance. Uh, and I was talking about the place where I would feel most at home without, without knowing it. And so I, I ended up on the Excel team just by reorganization accident. I was like, oh, this is, this is, this is kind of cool, <laughs> you know? Um, so I have to ask a quick question about Excel because sure. I feel like Excel gets a lot of bad rep, right? Like there's so many memes out there about yeah. Excel. And you're saying even back in the day, what was this? Was this the 90s that you were working on Excel? Like, yeah, it's probably it still getting a bad rap then. I mean, has this is poor Excel, like the bedrock of all we do with data. <laughs> yeah. Was it always yeah. looked at as kind of this, like nobody wants to be associated with Excel. So I think at, at Microsoft, the, the reasons for, for this reputation for saying what I said are different than they are in the real world. I mean, they might be sort of related. They might have a cousin in there, but it was more like, at Microsoft, especially like in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, that version of Microsoft wasn't super in tune with what customers really wanted. And so uh, on another podcast with a friend of mine recently, we were laughing about how um, almost everything at a certain point in time at Microsoft, every idea you were going to put into a product or every product idea uh, almost invariably started with, wouldn't it be cool if... Um, and, and it had to be cool within that room, the room at Microsoft where you were pitching it. It had to be, had to be you know, different and innovative and like a flex on the person, the person who was presenting the idea, like sort of like showing off how, how smart they were or whatever. And, um, and so none of the core applications in office where I was working at the time, none of those were considered a hot place to work. It wasn't, it wasn't just Excel. Like, I mean, Excel was, was probably, um, in some ways a, a cooler place to work than word, but it's funny when I ended up working on Excel and I would try to recruit other people to come work on Excel. Um, I found that people were really intimidated by it, um, at Microsoft, like, whereas everyone who'd worked on word, everyone, everyone knew what word was, you know, everyone knew what outlook was. and um, but Excel, unless you've used, as, you know, as, as you and I now know, right? Like when you get deep into Excel, it's a different world. Um, it's deep and people from outside of, of Excel could tell that they could tell that it was, that there was something mysterious going on there and they were scared by jumping into it. Um, but for me, it was just the, <laughs> it was just a blanket disregard for any of the things that people were already like using and valuing, it wasn't, you know, it was, it was the wrong kind of, of, uh, of, of skepticism for sure. Yeah. Um, it's a little different than the outside world. Uh, but that, but recruiting people to come work on it, I think that does resemble sort of the way Excel is treated in the, in the real world. Like everyone kind of looks down on it. If you're not a data gene person, you know, you're not carrying that particular, whatever it is. Um, they don't they look down on it while at the same time are intimidated by it. And that's a weird place to be, right? If for something to feel beneath you and intimidating at the same time should tell you that something's off, right? Like your perception of this thing isn't, these things aren't really compatible, you know? Um, but you know, that's, that's the way of the world, unfortunately. <laughs> a lot of people are intimidated by it because there's this fear of numbers and essentially that's usually what Excel is storing is numbers and data. And so many have 
unfortunately like childhood trauma with math and working with that. And so by just having that first replication of like, oh, it's going to be numbers and these sales, like there's this intimidation. And then what happens from that intimidation is you just look down on it by saying, hey, that's not for me. And it's a good way to excuse it. Or is there something more going on with it? I didn't well, mean I think this would be a whole psychoanalysis oh, of Excel. No, let's, let's, <laughs> no th this, is, this is the good stuff. Way more important, actually. I mean, we'll, we'll eventually get to my story. But this is this is this stuff that I think is fine. I personally find the most fascinating. So um, like it, by that, I think there, there's absolutely something to what you're saying there. That the experience, the, the experience of math and science and all those sorts of things that were inflicted on people in high school, uh, that leaves a mark, uh, an unfortunate mark. It didn't have to be done that way. If, if, if you look back, uh, like, do we really need calculus? Like, all the kids that were sitting in the calculus class with me saying, when are we ever going to use this? They were right. Like I never used it. <laughs> you know, like I was captain of the calculus team in high school uh, and I never used it. You know, so I was like, uh, I think the results are in. Um, but so like, but by that lens, right? Like I should have been the, the, like the absolute most enthusiastic about going to work on Excel. And so it was more like, I was just looking down on, on an established, you know, boring, quote unquote, boring tool. But I think there's another thing about Excel, though, which is that um, we, um, it is, you know, it is a programming language. You know, Excel formulas are, they pass every definition of, an, of, a, of a programming language, every formal definition. And so from the outside, I think there's an intimidation there that's not, people don't understand. You know, like the, the first time you see someone doing like, like this, this VLOOKUP formula, you just look over their shoulder and you see this equals and there's parentheses and there's dollar signs and letters and numbers. Like it's, it's rightly intimidating. Mm -hmm. um, and the person who's doing it is so excited about showing you, the person who's, who's showing it off, right? Like they're, like they're past all of that initial hurdle of intimidation. And so they're not, probably not, being terribly sympathetic to the person they're showing it to. They're, they're saying, hey, look, this is easy. And so they're pitching it the wrong way. You know, there's a, uh, I think people are right to be scared of Excel given the way that they're typically introduced to it. You know, and the, the people who take to it are ultimately the ones that end up sitting down and trying to do something with it, like initially anyway, without someone coaching them. Uh, it's it's a solo journey to become comfortable with these parentheses and the dollar signs and and all of that and um, and then once you become comfortable with that then you can take mentoring <laughs> but that initial you know getting through the initial like immune response is, uh, is 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 tricky. Yeah, I think you make a great point because of how deep Excel goes, right? So when you open it up, it looks like every other Microsoft product. Right. I mean, the ribbon yeah. is similar. So if you're used to Word, you're like, OK, I feel I feel comfortable with this. I've used PowerPoint. I've used Word. You dive into Excel. And then next thing you know, somebody's pulling up a V lookup formula that you've never yeah. seen before. And yeah. lights go off, you know, trauma response of your calculus classes. Yeah. Start get reinvigorated. So, yeah, I can definitely see it's like it looks comfortable to get into. And then all of a sudden 
it can be a rude awakening for folks who haven't had that opportunity or experience to dive into it before. But you took this yeah. and you were placed on the Excel team and turned this into something inspiring and something that led to your next pivot point. So what happened after you joined the Excel team? So it, on, on the 2007 release of Excel, which by the way is the release where the ribbon was introduced uh, into Office, so it sort of gives you like a historical anchoring point. Um, I was put in charge of, um, on the program management side anyway, the design side and the you know, sort of strategy side um, of the, all the business intelligence related features uh, in that release of, of, of Core Excel. And I don't really, you know, I laughed with my mentor on another podcast about this, who, who had a hand in selecting me for this job. And I was like, looking back, I'm like, you know, why? Why did, why did you pick me for this? I didn't know anything. And um, so uh, that's where I got to know the business intelligence space. Um, and I got to know the, the SQL Server team that was, you know, or, or a faction thereof that w at Microsoft was sort of the primary, you know, banner you know, standard carrier for BI at Microsoft. And um, so, um, so I got to know what that, what that looked like from, you know, designing a front end features on top of a, um, what, what at the time was SQL Server Analysis Services, the original version of, of SSAS, which um, we'll get to this, but like it morphs into Power BI in the historical progression. Um, so I got to know a lot of those people. Um, and uh, so that was my first, so I, I'd learned the Excel crowd. I'd really learned what the Excel user was all about, uh, especially like the VLOOKUP and pivot table crowd, which, you know, sooner or later, we'll start calling it the XLOOKUP and pivot table crowd because XLOOKUP is now, you know, so much better than VLOOKUP. But I have to, you know, revisit my memes uh, at some point. But um, so I learned about the Excel crowd and then I learned about the traditional business intelligence, um, you know, sort of industry and universe. Um, and then, um, some accidents, more accidents happen. Uh, like I, um, <laughs> I, I made, you know, it was in hindsight, a really silly move for my career, which was, I left the Excel team. Um, and I, I'd become, I'd sort of like made my mark there. I'd become sort of like, you know, I built a good reputation. Like there were succession plans for Excel that, that had my name in it. You know, like this is the sort of like thing that a, a career minded person would be like, ah, oh, I've arrived. And instead I went and left and went to work on uh, Microsoft Fantasy Sports, <laughs> uh, which um, was such a good idea that it got canned uh, within six months of me uh, moving over there. And I was now like looking for a, another job, but um, it turned out to be very important because while I was working on Microsoft Fantasy Sports, um, I had this idea and it, it got, it got buy-in, which was, to build Microsoft to build like the the world's number one publicly available sports um, statistics uh, portal, the number one place to go to to get statistics about about football, American football in particular at the time, and um, so this became a project using the technology I just come from. So with Excel and and Web Excel as the front end and analysis services, the traditional business intelligence stack on the back end and and integration services to do all of the data, you know, munging ETL stuff. And, um, and I didn't know how to do any of that. I mean, I, even though I've worked very close with it, like I wasn't a, uh, you know, a skilled practitioner of like the MDX formula language. And I never, I never became one. So we hired a consulting organization um, and to come in and do this for us. 
And um, so now I got to experience, I'd helped build traditional BI software. Now I got to be a, the, see it from the, the customer lens. And, um, and it wasn't, in hindsight, it was, it was bad. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a good experience. Um, and, um, but it, that just sort of, sort of like got, got filed away for later. Like, um, but like having that, you know, turning the tables experience ended up being very important. And then the third data point was um, after fantasy sports got uh, canceled completely because, you know, Microsoft realized strategically this didn't make any sense. And, you know, young Rob should have known <laughs> that this didn't make any sense. It shouldn't, shouldn't have gone over there. Um, but then I got recruited by the analysis services team to come and help them on this thing they call Project Gemini. I'm like, ooh, what is, that sounds cool. What is Project Gemini? And Project Gemini um, originally, you know, eventually when it went to market in 2010, it was called Power Pivot. And um, Power Pivot is the true forerunner to Power BI. And, um, and the reason that I was, you know, I'd made a favorable impression, I guess, uh, when I'd worked with them on the 2007 Excel release, but they really wanted someone to come in and help them anchor the Excel user in this world because that was their target. This was a huge, huge, risky, ambitious uh, change in focus for the analysis services team. Because they had traditionally, just like everybody else, business objects, Cognos, all these traditional players, um, had always targeted like the, almost like the, the high-end IT professional as the developer. Of, of models as the person who would be writing formulas, the person who'd be writing logic. And this was their first, this was Microsoft's first foray into what they now call the citizen developer space. And so they specifically wanted the VLOOKUP and pivot table crowd to become capable of building high-end business intelligence solutions. Um, and what a fascinating project. Um, and so, um, have you, have you ever seen, have you ever seen Power Pivot? Have you ever even, you know, like is it, is it, it didn't, you know, it was a good first step, but it, you know, didn't get a lot of, of uh, um, I don't know, exposure, I guess. is the... Yeah, I, I was never exposed to that world. And this is what I love talking to, to people is to hear the history of like what was originally like the first version of it, right? In my understanding, like history of Power BI was just like Power BI, that was it, right? They kind of took everything. But I had no idea the world of power pivot existed prior to this. Like if you open uh, your copy of Excel today, at least on PC Excel, I'm not sure if they ever put it in Mac Excel. I think they probably didn't. Um, but, you know, Windows Excel, if you open it today, you go into the, the add-ins menu, you can enable power pivot. It's already there. Um, and um, so, uh, you know, at a really high level, imagine being able to build massive data models, you know, containing millions and millions of rows or, you know, only tens of thousands, if that's all you had and interrelate them in a way that, um, and run calculations across them that, that in Excel would be incredibly labor intensive. Um, and, uh, and we built it for the pivot table crowd. And, um, so, uh, so that was sort of the third piece of experience. And, and then I guess, the, the sort of the crowning jewel on top of it was I started a blog uh, about Power Pivot, and I needed something to write about. 
And so I did the lazy thing, which was, um, let's just go rebuild that, that thing I did for fantasy sports. Let's go rebuild it, but with power pivot. And I'll document, you know, what I was doing, you know, throughout, I needed just like, you know, some, some you know, uh, reliable thing to come back to as a, as a generator of content for a, for a blog, you know, and, uh, I did not expect it to be very good. This is version one of Power Pivot. <laughs> and I'd been to this rodeo a lot. I'd seen so many really, really ambitious version one product. Remember, I was the wouldn't it be cool if person, right? I only worked on new <laughs> stuff. That was what I wanted to do. And um, and it was always disappointment. <laughs> you know, yeah. like the results were always nothing compared to what we originally envisioned. And it kind of fizzled a little bit in the in the world. Um, and uh, to my surprise, Power Pivot was amazing. Like it exceeded every realistic expectation I could have ever had for it. And only because of um, my sort of unique sequence of experiences at that point in time, uh, seeing, seeing this, this story, this industry from so many different facets um, and knowing the Excel crowd the way I knew them, um, that's when I realized that, uh, that the world was going to change. That this, this citizen developer thing, which they hadn't called it citizen developer yet, like this was going to change the entire nature of the, of what I thought of as the business intelligence market, uh, which was even in 2010 when I was having this realization, it's already like, I mean, like double digit or approaching a hundred billion somewhere in there, like of annual spend worldwide on you know all up on services on software and all that kind of stuff, and the old sort of ivory tower model of you need to go get like the IT pro and then spend a tremendous amount of time and money just dragging yourself through the quicksand to get a you know relatively unimpressive result that you paid dearly for. Uh, um, like I had sort of known that that was broken, but because there was no alternative to that model, I didn't really characterize it as broken. This is sort of like the best we can do. And when I saw the power pivot in, there was one formula I wrote in Power Pivot where it all became clear to me, like, because I wrote it in about 20 minutes. And I remember writing that same formula with the consultant back on fans, on the fantasy sports project. And that project, that process took two weeks uh, in the original going. And it took me like 20 to 30 minutes with Power Pivot. Yeah, and not just from uh, the consulting side of things, but also how a lot of teams are working in the day, which was, hey, I submit a ticket to my IT team or my right. you know, BI development team. Yeah. They, it takes yeah. two weeks for them to even acknowledge it. They didn't understand That's right. That's what right. I'm asking for. Right. And then I get this product back four weeks later and yeah. the decision I was trying to make is no longer relevant and this doesn't apply, right? Right. And on top of that, it's clear that there was a misunderstanding in, in the interpretation of the ticket and they didn't even give me what I, what I wanted. Um, and, you know, regardless of whose fault that is, if it takes you, you know, four weeks to discover the miscommunication, I imagine how, you know, demoralizing uh, that can be. I remember seeing there was, I don't remember where I saw this. I wish I, I wish I could track this down, but there was some sort of like industry metric on how many days it took, how many business days it took to add one exist, one column, one additional column to an already existing report. And it was something like nine business days. Well. <laughs> Uh, and imagine if it was more nuanced, you know, 
Um, so obviously the need of this citizen developer was huge, right? I mean, who has, uh, people who are new into the data space are probably like, thinking we sound like dinosaurs talking about like, oh my goodness, I had to submit a ticket to add a column, you know? Yes. You're lucky you live in today's day and age, right? Where you can do it yourself. But you were able to see that wave and say, this is going to be big and get on the wave at the right time and the right place. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, there's a saying in, um, uh, in finance that being, being early, being too early is the same thing as being wrong. (laughs) Um, I think I was probably too early, but I, but that was good for me because, um, like I needed the time and P3 needed the time to figure out the model of how to, how to make all this work. And so, um, the fundamental idea behind P3 is that, um, the old ivory tower model operates on a very small number of projects every year. Um, whether you're a consulting organization or a customer. There's very few projects executed every year. In fact, in some ways, it's like less than one because of the duration of these things running, you know, it's 18, 24, 36 months. Um, and, um, and they're very expensive, you know, for good reason, right? They're long. Right? And they're, um, but the vast majority of need for these projects is completely unaddressed. Even if you called that tiny, tiny, tiny sliver of 1% that actually gets budget and gets you know traction, even if you called those a success, which by the way, they never were. I, I was, I, I, in all my years of studying this, I never found one that everyone was just like, yeah, this was a real, we, we just high five uh, all the time about this. Like there was, there was never one, there was like, they only tolerated the results. Um, and, but the, the remainder of them never even got addressed. Uh, no traction. Like if you worked at a um, an SMB, you know, small mid-sized business, chances are you don't you didn't even have the budget to ever execute one ever. Uh, not to mention all of the tremendous you know departmental level needs at enterprises, like all of this completely unaddressed. And so the the idea behind P3 was that with the new tools and with a new kind of practitioner, um those projects that that run for 18 24 36 months could actually be executed in like a matter of weeks and therefore executed at a much lower cost as well and then um for from a consulting perspective um that earns you the right to do all the other projects um it's like all that extra all that extra demand isn't going to go away so the idea the old the old model was huge monolithic projects very few per year that's what fed consulting companies. And the new model was going to be many, many, many projects, higher velocity projects, you know, shorter, you know, more intensive, you know, better results, but more of them, uh, you know, like an order of magnitude, more projects per year. Um, and I knew that the consulting firms that I'd worked with um, had been completely built around the old model, the monolithic, you know, ivory tower model. And there was no way for them to just change their DNA. So we needed a new kind of firm. And that's what that's what I set out to build uh, with P3. Um, and, and I think, mm-hmm. yeah, and I think one of the changes too that's happened, I've seen a lot, is moving from hoarding to enablement, right? So as you mentioned, with the rise of the 
citizen developer, okay, if you want to bring value, that's a, you have to empower people, right? The tools are there. The access is there. How do you empower people versus before it was, how do I hoard all the projects so that I can do them and get that opportunity versus how do I enable people? Because I know the work isn't going to go away. I mean, we have more data being created every single day than ever before. So the more we can share our knowledge and I love your story about how it started with the blog because when you took your failures of, you know, trying different projects and working on the sports analytics team at Microsoft and use that as a starting point. And so I love where you're at with this because some of the work I see you guys doing really is around enablement, empowerment and training and Hey, we're not here to hog all the projects, but we're here to make sure you realize that value. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, the hoarding thing. Um, there was something very much in common between the average IT organization and the consultants, the consulting organizations, that both of them um, wanted to hoard control. Um, and it's a it's slightly different dynamic, but like on the IT side, you can kind of understand it. Like um, even today, like IT, if you're truly working in, in IT, uh, like infrastructural IT, you still, I believe to this day, very rarely get noticed except when things go wrong. Um, you have a very, a very defensive mindset because that's what's been inflicted on you. And so like the, the, the world is sort of like trained IT, I think, unfortunately. Like they're not, IT didn't decide to be like, you know, white knuckling hoarding things just because they're bad people, right? Like they're, they're doing this because they know better, right? Like every time they allow others into the pool, they get blamed for the pollution, you know? Um, so there was, there's some, there's some real long-term reinforcement and habits that need to, need to be unlearned there. And on the other side, um, the consulting organizations in order to, to be successful, um, they needed, I've, I've seen it and it's just the, the, the nastiest dynamic. Like they needed to wield an information advantage over their clients. Um, I, I sat in a room one time while a senior leader from one of these big consulting firms, not even big, just a traditional firm, was on a phone yelling at one of his direct reports and saying things like, you realize that the client is in there right now having a meeting, talking about their needs and their futures, and they're, they're thinking for themselves. Like, we can't have that. He was furious with his direct report for allowing this to happen. Um, and that's actually one of the nicest stories I can, I can tell that I, that I watched. And so um, the hoarding from the consulting side, um, being deliberately mysterious, uh, almost, and not almost, deliberately obfuscating, uh, making sure that the client could never be self-sufficient, even for a percentage of their own needs. That's part of their business model. And whereas, so I can be sympathetic with the IT one, you know, they, they came by it honestly, right? This other consulting one, like the traditional consulting model is one that like really, really, really rubs me the wrong way. Like I, 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 ugh, like I'd never enjoyed even being in the same room. Like those conversations felt dirty, even though I wasn't part of it. You know? uh, so yeah, the, the hoarding world has got, has got to go. Yeah, so how do we move to a space? You know, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this, even in their own organization, whether it's, you know, they're working with consultants they feel like are hoarding or, you know, they have IT teams 
or they're chief data officers and they're trying to inspire a culture of like innovation and knowledge sharing. Like how do we truly enable an organization to become these citizen developers? And let's just use like Power BI as an example. Like okay. what are the best practices for I've just adopted Power BI as a chief data officer. I'm giving it out to the entire organization. What's my next step? Like, what do I do to make sure this isn't just a tool sitting on a shelf, but I'm truly enabling people to think for themselves, to go and create, to discover these insights, and to be able to get value from this tool? I, my personal take on this is that um, there's, there's a misconception, which is that this democratization thing should treat everyone in the organization exactly the same way. <laughs> uh, you know, like most people, and we talked about this, I'm pretty sure if on the, like, I, I talk about the data gene as if it were a, an actual, you know, it's just a, it's just a thought concept, right? It's, it's, it's a construct, like a thought experiment, but like, I've seen it, like we multiple different ways that we can arrive at this sort of number, but like about one out of 16 people at most, has an interest in this stuff. Like it's like the Excel test. Like you, we, the first time writing like a sum formula that, that adds up the column of numbers rather than, than uh, you know, typing them into a calculator or whatever over and over again. Um, if that, if, if you have no reaction to that, but your first time you see that, you're like, so? Then you're one of the 15 out of 16. Uh, but the one out of 16 goes, ooh. <laughs> again, it has nothing to do with whether you were into math in high school. Isn't that, that's the, so beautiful. So many people yes. become amazing data practitioners and they weren't the calculus kids. Uh, they had too much perspective <laughs> to be the calculus <laughs> kid. Like I, that I, you know, I lacked that perspective in high school, um, but I've, I've changed teams, um, I like to think. So um, the, the people that are gonna make uh, like a Power BI deployment successful, um, uh, for an organization are probably already on staff. And they're people that if you're like, if you're like the, the chief data officer or you're, you're someone central, you've probably never met them. Mm -hmm. um, or there's a reasonably good chance you haven't. You've probably been meeting, the people you meet from the, the business units are the, you know, the, the figurehead nominal leaders of those, and not nominal, I mean, they, they literally are the leaders of those organizations, but they're not gonna be the data leaders of, the, of those organizations because probably they lack the gene, right? They're, they're not the person, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, but somewhere in their org are the people who are already doing this. You know, like if you're still like, most people I think are still, most organizations even today are overwhelmingly dependent on Excel as their reporting engine. Uh, you know, like the, the surface area of things like Power BI of like, you know, quintupled over the years. Like, you know, even if they're a hundred times larger than they used to be, they're still in single digit percentage <laughs> in terms of like the, the overall, you know, the amount of numbers that are crunched and, and, and real reports that are produced. It's still very often, very often Excel. And so how do we um, find these people though? I mean, do, do I go out and give everybody a test and be like, okay, I'm going to show you this. I'm going to yeah. do something to Excel. Yeah. If their eyes light up, I have eye tracking on them. And if their eyes light yeah, up, yeah, then, yeah. then yeah. I'm like, ding, 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 I got one. You know, and because yeah. that is some of the struggle, especially at a, you know, chief data officer level, 
you're not in the trenches. You don't get to see this hidden talent. Like, is there a test that we can do? Or what do we do to find the data gene? Well, there's a couple of different ways. Like one of them is is very similar to what you just said. Like, and this is just, this is just uh, a long-term. I used to pitch to Microsoft all the time, like in terms of like getting Power BI people interested or Power Pivot people, like getting the word out, just putting posters like anywhere that just said like, you know, just two words, like VLOOKUP, pivot table. And like, you know, 15 out of 16 people are just going to walk by that poster if it isn't even there. And one person out of 16 is going to stop and look at that poster going, like, wait, 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 well, why am I encountering this out in the, the real world where the, where all the other people are? And like anyone that, that stops in front of that poster, like, you you know, you screenshot them. <laughs> you know, like, it's like the hunting cameras that they use, like the, like, you know, the trail cameras that they use to... To, to see where the deer are at night. Like it's the same same sort of thing. So that's that's the joke version, but it would work. It would totally mm-hmm. work. Or the other one like is you can just- a billboard in front of your office of like, honk, yeah. honk if yeah. you yeah. want to be look up, right? And, you yeah. know, we'll yeah. find those yeah. people. You, <laughs> yeah, yeah if, you, if you get into a, uh, a fender bender uh, after after that, that seeing that billboard, you probably, yeah. Um, but I mean, the other one is sort of like, it's just follow the spreadsheets. You know, you can you can start at the top of a business unit, and um, as long as you have reasonably collaborative leadership in that business unit, you can say, okay, what are the spreadsheets you see every day? All right. So, uh, and then if they say, well, you know, I really just get my information from you know these mid-level managers that report to me, and you go, so you just keep following backwards, and eventually. You, you walk your way back down that that org chart to the people who made the spreadsheets. Um, the people who are making the spreadsheets um, that that power these you know daily decisions. And again, people might not want to admit this. This is the thing you have to get past: is that the managers might might want not want to admit that they're making their decisions based off of spreadsheets because they've been given this this other system that they're supposed to be using, and they're gonna potentially be defensive about admitting that now like 80% of my decisions are still coming through, you know, spreadsheet things. Um, So you have to find a way to get past that dynamic. Um, But if you can work your way backwards, people who are producing these spreadsheets, you're going to find people who are um, curious. People like this tend to have a lot of curiosity. Um, They have a mind for technical subjects, even though if you ask them, they would say they didn't. Um, they've passed all of the real tests uh, of, you know, of, of um, you know, enthusiasm and skill and capability. Um, and the, just as valuable is that they're already embedded in the business. They already understand everything about the business unit. And like, and they might be one of the most informed people about how things actually work um, because their spreadsheets have to be correct. <laughs> And that forces them to be, in some ways, like like a historian slash librarian of like all of the unwritten rules, all the business logic, everything that's not written down. Which, you know, um, just to absorb all of that, is not something you can do overnight. You know, um, so um, they have an IT type job, but they're using, you know, a, a poor tool set. I mean, Excel is not a poor tool set. It's actually an amazing tool set. And that it's capable of so much, but these people, if they were given something like like Power BI, and 
we have, you know, in my experience, we have a very, very high percentage like conversion rate. Like if someone's a VLOOKUP and pivot person, like we can turn them into, um, you know, uh, a Power BI person because it's 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 better at doing the things that they're already doing. They're, they're going to be emotionally motivated to learn it, just like they were emotionally motivated to learn Excel. So yeah, I you know, working backwards, follow the spreadsheets. Um, you know, again, if you can get cooperation, like honesty in this process, you you can find the people that you need. Yeah, I think you make a really good call out to that even following the spreadsheet some people may be afraid to admit that they're using excel or you know google sheets whatever tool you use at your organization and i think that's important for us to think about is how much if we are someone with the data gene do we bash people or certain tools and how people use them? And I think it's important just to remember that it's never a good habit to do that, right? We should always be rewarding what somebody's doing with something because the yeah. second you ask, hey, you know, how are you making decisions? And they know that you in another meeting made fun of people who use Excel yeah. and yeah. they're less likely yeah. to say something now, right? I think it's just a good word of caution. I see it happen all the time not just with Excel, but other tools, right? If you use R versus Python or, you know, if you're using an old classification model of a decision tree and why aren't you building deep neural networks today, right? I mean, you can go on and on and name them. And I think we really need to be cautious about that because who knows, that could be our next person who we need to talk yeah. about something of value, but we've shamed them so much into even having a conversation that that opportunity is gone now. And I, I I agree. And I think there's two distinct, at least two distinct classes of um, sort of snobbery that we can talk about there. One of them is just um, a business world um, stigma attached to being the data person. Like if, um, if you're a, a, a spreadsheets and even a BI person, um, now, I know this is changing slowly because, you know, data has now been like the hot topic in business for a very long time. So it's it's seeping through, you know, the bedrock, but it's 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 not overnight. But I've heard so many stories and witnessed so many stories of people being told, listen, if you want to continue to move up in the org, you're going to have to shed this reputation as the data person. Um, and, you know, I mean, not. You know, it's, it's hard to imagine, right? Like, I mean, like not in our worlds, like places where you and I go, data is cool. But um, I think that that is that dynamic doesn't die out, you know, uh, rapidly. It, it's um, um, it's going to require a lot of people to retire. Um, is is what's going to have to happen, I think. Um, and uh, but then there's the the technical world snobbery, you know, my software can beat up your software. Uh, it's almost like a, like a, like a Kung Fu movie. Like, you know, my master's Kung Fu better than your master's Kung Fu, <laughs> you know, like, um, and, uh, yeah, that second flavor is, is, is really unfortunate, isn't it? Um, and, uh, especially seeing how like so many of us in this space grew up, um, you know, speaking for myself here, I definitely did. I grew up as not the cool kid, you know, uh, and um, like, you know, 
I know what it's like to be, you know, to be bullied and then to turn around and like, now that I've got power in the world because of software and tools and all this kind of to like, to like pay it back uh, to others of, of, you know, like, like by making fun of their, you know, what they have found that is successful for them. Like, yuck, <laughs> don't do that. Please don't do that. Yeah, worst. I mean, at that point, we just like keep the cycle going, and we never yeah. evolve yeah. as humanity, right? You know, like taking yeah. what was like the saying goes, "Hurt people, hurt people," but eventually, we have to break that cycle. Yeah, and so I think that's good motivation for all of us to just, you know, watch the words we're using in terms of tools and language and how we're making this world of data accessible to all. So we've talked a little bit about from a CDO perspective, enabling a Power BI deployment, but from an individual perspective, how do you find out if you have that data gene, right? It sounds like, you know, you get excited about working with these tools and the formulas and what you can do and the value that you have, but beyond getting excited about it, like how do you become really powerful now this sounds like some you know mythical like i want to become the superpower power (laughs) but how do you how do you become that how do you level up your power bi skills as a developer in this space Uh, one thing is to you know remind yourself that like um almost any level of power is good um and so and not to judge yourself too harshly so like um like when like when power bi first came out and power pivot first came out um i had the advantage i used to think of it as a disadvantage but i think it, i think of it now completely as an advantage of there not being a lot of of like dax for example like the formula language of power bi there wasn't a lot of dax expertise out there it just wasn't um and so I didn't have anything to compare myself to. So I could write a blog post where um, I could just like my, my ignorance, my lack of skill could be just completely on display and just displayed to the world. And people could write in in comments and say, hey, I don't think your formula is actually returning the right results. And I go look at it and I go, oh, holy hell, you're right. <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> and then write the, the you know, the, the blog post, follow-up blog post, which explains the mistake, you know? And um, whereas now, if you go look at, at, like, for Dax blogs and Dax, you know, how-to videos and all kinds of stuff, you're just going to find an avalanche of information. And it's, there's a form of accidental gatekeeping that is taking place now which is that um, there's a lot of striving for the the DAX to be optimal. And optimal DAX, hey, who doesn't like optimal, you know? But but it's not friendly. It's it's very intimidating. And I like I wrote what for for a long time and maybe even, you know, in history now is still there's like the number one selling book on dax like in its day i don't know if it still is um it probably isn't but maybe just based on the the inertia of of history maybe it still holds the top spot um and i don't know that i would get into it today um because of the level of sophistication and again this sort of accidental gatekeeping that's taken. I'm, I'm very sensitive to that kind of thing 
you know, I, I am, I am self-critical and, um, and it's kind of like being like we talked about earlier, like being shown a VLOOKUP formula by someone who's like really, you know, well-versed in it. Um, and like, that's going to have a repulsive effect, I think. And so first things first is to not judge yourself by the celebrities. Um, because the, the, the celebrities of today uh, would have scared off this person who, you know, if you're joining Power BI today, you don't even know who I am. This is this is fine. Right? I've, you know, we've gone and formed a company instead. I'm no longer like a one of these. But like for a long time, I was the celebrity in this space, and I'm saying that I wouldn't have gotten into it <laughs> with with today's landscape. So be very 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 kind to yourself. Um, is 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 you know be. Um, I haven't taught a class in a while, but when I used to, I would tell people your first job here is to be bad at this. Just because like, being bad at Power BI is still a superpower, you know? It's like, oh, I can lift a skyscraper, but I can't lift the whole city. Like, don't don't judge yourself. <laughs> like, but you can't lift it. You're lifting a skyscraper, you know? Like, don't, don't forget. And like when I was learning, I would look back like every six months at what I did six months prior and look at the formulas and look how I built the data model and go, oh, I was so cute back then. You know, like I was so bad, you know, relative to, you know, six months later, I would look back and think I was an amateur, but that amateur performance was making millions and millions of dollars of, of tangible impact in the real world um, for the, you know, the organizations that were, that were using it. It's like, do I need to go back and fix these formulas that are making, you know, making them like, you know, super profitable compared to what they used to be? You know, probably not, <laughs> you know? Um, so like the old joke, wherever you go, there you are. Um, you know, have some, have some, uh, mercy and some sympathy with yourself that you're not, you know, that the celebrities would, would kind of giggle at, at, at what you're doing. Like, it's okay. Um, just get, you know, just like that usual thing, like just get a little bit better every day and the cumulative results are going to be, um, a big deal. Um, yeah, I'm not sure so if that's a complete important. answer. No, I think that's. Perfect. And I think it's just such an important nugget, whether you're doing it in Power BI or something else. I mean, I've seen LinkedIn really transform. LinkedIn used to be like a place you go maybe once or twice a week. And you were only on there if you were really looking for a job to what it is now today of like influencer marketing was what I'm yeah. saying. So yeah. I think that's such an important call out of like, one, don't judge yourself based on the celebrity because they've also taken the collective body of knowledge of the people who have come before them and accumulated that. And then the other side of things is you don't know where someone else is on their journey versus where you are, right? And their, yeah. their story, they may be at chapter 10, where you're at chapter two, and you have so much story left in your book yes. to share. Yes. Yeah, I, I completely agree. LinkedIn has become... I. You know the the reputation that Facebook rightly earned uh, even years yeah. ago was you know like everyone it's like this um this insecurity machine mm -hmm. um, where everyone that's posting is only showing you the best things about their life and everything is like a a humble brag right everything's so you a flat. Know I have a mathematical equation. Well, it's not really an equation. It's very simple. Like I'm not pulling out any VLOOKUP. So you bring up a great question of how it's such a highlight reel. And so I was thinking about that and I was like, 
how much of a highlight, like, can I quantify like a highlight mm. reel? And so one of the things I looked at was I have had an iPhone since 2016 and okay. I have always had the iCloud photos. And so all my photos are stored on my phone. And so I thought about it and I was like, oh, I know how many photos I've ever taken myself. And that's every photo. Like that's the photos that are bad that I that's don't the post, camera. Right. Like yeah. that's like yeah. if I let's just say I gave and put it on LinkedIn all of my photos. Right. Like how much of my life would someone actually see? And so I just made like a simple equation was like, let's say it takes one second to take a photo, right? So each of those photos represent a second of my life. Now, photos are faster than that, but it really is just capturing a moment, right? So I took the time of how long I had photos of when they first started to now, you know, looked up on Google and converted that to seconds, divided it by, you know, how many photos I have. And you know how much it represented? I have 17,000 photos, right? If I were to share all 17,000 on social media, it was like 0.000007% of my life, right? And that's if I shared all 17,000. So just to add some perspective to people, not only are you seeing a highlight reel on social media, you're not even seeing that. You're not even seeing the 17,000 photos in their phone. You are seeing... A vision, inspiration, vision board is really what yeah. it is, right? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, next time you get curious and need some perspective, just quantify how much of their life you really see. <laughs> and like, you know, the average photo that's taken even of people, it isn't candid, you know? Like uh, everyone all smiling at the same time, that doesn't happen, you know? <laughs> get the same split second. That is, that, there's... I mean, like, it is, of course, there's something authentic about that picture for sure. At the same time, though, like, even that is staged, you know? So, like, it's, uh, yeah, I thought you were going to say, like, oh, and I've posted of those, you know, 17,000 photos. I posted, like, you know, uh, 500 of them in total. But that'd be a hard one to add up, right? Like, how do you find the number of photos on LinkedIn and, and Facebook and all that sort of stuff? Um, so it's even, yeah, it's even a, a tiny fraction of that. that. That's, I've never thought about that. I think that's a, a great way, <laughs> you know. Um, I, I think that same dynamic has come to LinkedIn, and in fact, it's even more deliberate on LinkedIn. Um, I I even I find LinkedIn to be like a FOMO generating insecurity engine now. Um, I don't particularly enjoy it. <laughs> um, and um, you know, and obviously, not everyone's treating it the same way. But there is a there's a really strong percentage of ballast on LinkedIn now that I think is like, you know, it's 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 someone trying to represent themselves themselves or their company or whatever in the best possible light, which I completely understand. It's just that as a side effect, it creates so much insecurity. Uh, professional insecurity whereas facebook you know all it does is personal insecurity you know um and um especially in a world where like you know the it seems like the number of 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 um jobs like actually good jobs that are available in the world like that seems to be shrinking you know like it's like this lifeboat drill 
where like every now and then another lifeboat is removed. Um, and then we have this going on on LinkedIn. Like it's, I can, I can imagine the amount of sort of like, you know, emotional eh, <laughs> that's, that's being generated. And so that comes back to the celebrities thing again, like just remember that what's going on in your world, um, you know it better than anyone else in your professional world. Like, you know, what's going on at your company and, um, you know, take, take the LinkedIn experience with a grain of salt. I couldn't agree more. And I, I think the other side of things is, you know, just focus on your own journey, right. And measure yeah. your own progress, your own learning. I love what you tell people, which is when they're first learning something new, like your first goal is to be bad at it and to fail at it. And I think that's, like such a good reminder for all of us to just have that space. So shifting gears a little bit, one of the things mm -hmm. I really wanted to talk with you about is some of the changes you've made in terms of hiring and job descriptions to get yeah. more diverse candidates. So can you talk a little bit? I know you're a big advocate and ally for diversity at your organization. But you went beyond just saying and stamp it, you know, posting on LinkedIn that I'm an ally, right? Yeah. You went into yeah. practice to say, you know, how are we representing this and are we attracting the right people? So can you talk a little bit more about some of the changes you've made at P3 in terms of hiring and, and practices to attract the right candidates and to make an inclusive organization? Yeah. Um yeah, let's let's talk about that. And let me let me preface it actually by saying that, like, um, this diversity for us isn't isn't just a good human thing. It isn't just a feel good thing. Like, it's a business thing. Um, like even even if we were a cold and calculating, you know, completely like you know, um. Yeah, just robotic organization, which we're not. We're actually completely opposite. But even if we were, if we took that really seriously, we would say, we've seen it. What I call the data gene cuts across all demographics at about that same one out of 16. I've never seen anything to suggest that it's concentrated in one place. You know, um, I've, quite the opposite. It crops up everywhere. Uh, and it's rare everywhere, but it's, you know, but it's equally represented everywhere. And so, um, you know, when, when we're looking at our, our applicant pool and it's, you know, like, like majority white male, you know, historically, like we're missing something, you know, like hiring is an important part of our growth. Um, so like, oh, you want to like double the size of the candidate pool well you know like the first thing to do is like what about everybody that's not applying and um it's 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 challenging um because well you know like like you know this is something we, you and i talked about a little bit before like like i wrote the original job descriptions and i certainly intended them to be uh for everyone um but then like uh christy on our team read them and, you know, I'd read some articles about particular, you know, uh, the ways things are worded and said, Hey, you know, we're actually accidentally using a lot of like terms that overwhelmingly appeal to men. 
I'm like, really? What what are they? And she said, so like, I think one of our job description had had um, said things like, you know, every day you'll be like on the on the on the front lines of the data revolution. Like, and as soon as she said it, I'm like, oh, Dios mio! <laughs> I'm using war metaphors in our job description. <laughs> Like, and have you been someone who I, I believe you haven't done any military service? It's not like oh, no, yeah, that's something no, that I do on no. a daily basis either. No, right? no. Like I was trying to describe excitement, you know, and like being being in the thick of it, being on and again, like even like guess what? Guess what phrase comes next? Like the cutting edge. Is that is that a good phrase to use? I'm 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 gonna be more careful now, you know? Um so we we made a bunch of changes to the way that innocently worded things, you know, they can they can they can come from a good place but still be, you know, the wrong wording. They can still be ineffective. They can, you know, like so get out of your own way and, and fix those things. Um, and then recently another one that came up um, was uh, uh, we had just left our travel policy. Uh, or at least the advertised version of it in our job description, we left it alone since pre-COVID. Uh, no one even really thought about it. Um, and um, uh, someone reached out to me on LinkedIn, or I reached out to her, I forget which, and she she told me that she'd been thinking about applying, but um, and she wasn't really comfortable with the amount of travel that we talked about in our job description. And I just immediately went like, oh, I wonder what our <laughs> I wonder what our description of travel is in our job description because I bet it's super stale, and it was it was super stale and we we were saying twenty five percent travel, and and I was like oh we have not done anywhere near twenty five percent travel, and but at the same time it was the conversation with you on our podcast where we were talking about the amount of um you know sort of the invisible work around a household that disproportionately falls on women. Um, you know, this isn't this isn't something that we like or that we we think is the correct state of the world, but it is a description of the way things on net have tended to work. And then I was like, I connected the dots immediately with that. It was like, oh well, like of course travel, uh, you know, like for, for a mom or or a wife in this situation, uh both, um be disproportionately sort of um, difficult uh, for her uh, than it would be for men. And this 25% had just been sitting there. It was like this stealth repulsor <laughs> for, you know, for years. And since ever since COVID, we've never been near 25%. We ran the numbers <laughs> in response to this and it came out, we were like, we were like two or 3%. Uh, it was the reality uh, for us. And so we just changed it to travel optional. Like, you know, some people like it occasionally. Um, you know, it's it's fun. Uh, some people welcome it. Others others really don't want to do it. And the, if we're at two or three percent, we certainly have the ability to absorb that uh, from the audience that that likes it. <laughs> you know, so we changed it to travel optional, and um, and uh, she she applied that like that week and breezed through the interview, um, and was doing. Uh, amazing work at one of our highest profile clients um, within our first couple of weeks. Um, it's like, I'm so glad we had that conversation. If we hadn't had that conversation, 
we were, we, you know, I'm gonna, eventually we would have found this. Um, but yeah, I'm sure and this is the thing based on this experience. I'm now looking for the other seven places where we're accidentally doing things like this. Like it, there's, there's no way that we've, we've found them all. And some of them are going to be so subtle, like even, you know, obviously even more subtle than these things. And so, um, like, um, you know, people listening to this, uh, and you sent me the demographics, right? So like, there's, a, there's, there's a lot, a lot of women listening to this. Look at our website. Look at our careers page, p3adaptive.com. Tell us, you know, um, I'm just Rob at p3adaptive.com. Drop me an email. Tell me, like, hey, these are the these. <laughs> you see one of the stealth things that we haven't discovered yet, um, or just in general, what would be discouraging of diversity? Um, we do not want to be um, a concentrated, you know, a, a, a company, you know, staffed by a concentrated single demographic. Um, it's wrong for every reason, you know, um, including the I, hardcore business about your, Yeah, I, what I love about your story here is you kind of you took almost a quantitative approach where you go, wait, the data gene is everywhere, right? It doesn't matter yeah. race, gender. You know, yeah. how people identify, none of this matters. But for some reason, something's messed up with our sample that we're not getting that sample. And totally. then totally. had that openness, you know, same way you shared with putting your work out there in Power BI and getting feedback and not worrying about being perfect, right? Putting the openness out there like, hey, I need feedback on this. What is wrong? What are some of those things that I'm missing? And to see, hey, there's language in here that, yeah, why is that in there, right? And I think we all have those opportunities of like unconscious bias or maybe just old terminology that we've picked up and it's like, mm -hmm. why am I using this? This no longer serves me. And have yeah. the opportunity to take that feedback, modify, change, see results, and then continue to iterate, right? It started with, hey, we're not going to put the front lines of data on there anymore. To, <laughs> Wait, could we change the language of travel options and make that more accessible to people. Yeah. And now even having the call of putting your email out there and say, Hey, go take a look at our website. If there's other things you see, like we're open to it. We want feedback. This is how we learn and grow in this space by having real conversations and being okay to quote unquote fail. Right. So that we can be more inclusive and make sure that, we're not oversampling the data gene for one population. So thank yeah. you. Oh, I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Right? You know, like, again, like, um, like the, the, the speed with which we reacted, we, I think we still would have reacted, but the speed and the clarity with which we reacted to this one um, conversation on LinkedIn about the travel policy, like, like it was so much more, um, like we went, it was like, 48 hours or less and we had the policy updated um and I, I credit that to the conversation you and i had had um that was a, a really important link in that chain for me so um yeah like I, I used to be really um insecure about discovering things that i was wrong about like and i had like i would like almost like reject the information like no it's fine you know <laughs> um and you know now it's more like like so those are the best moments, <laughs> like oh we 
we've been making it harder than we need to. Uh, let's not do that anymore. Yes, I think that's something we could all take on, whether it's within our higher practices, our Power BI development is, we don't need to make it harder than it needs to. And when somebody gives no. us a piece of oh. advice or feedback, you know, you have the opportunity to accept it and change, to divert it and say, nope, going to keep going my own way, but why make things harder than they need to be? So I think this is a great place for us to wrap up today. But before we close okay. every episode, we love to go through some rapid fire questions and have some fun. All um, right. So if you're down, are you I ready am. for the I'm ready. rapid fire? Rap, rap, rapid okay. fire. Let's do it. Um, what song, podcast, or book can you not put down right now? Oh, well, song. I've got lots of songs. So podcasts. Um, okay. I listen to, uh, guess what? Back to my roots. I listen to the Roto World uh, Fantasy Football podcast because these are funny people, real human beings who are also using a lot of statistics, a lot of, a lot of advanced metrics to make their recommendations and providing the narratives and the storytelling to go with it. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I can't, I can't, I can't get enough of, of that. Uh, so, you know, maybe, maybe not the one that most people will listen to. Um, but like when that one, that, that comes out like three times a week and I'm just like, Oh, now I'm in, I just can't, I can't, I cannot put that down. Favorite place you traveled. Favorite place I've traveled. Um, gosh, I, I think I, uh, I think I like Costa Rica. Uh, you know, it's, it's got about that, that, that pace that I like, <laughs> you know, uh, super friendly. Um, yeah, we've gone back multiple times, uh, even though we don't, we don't really travel internationally all that much. Like for us to go back to a, a another country, uh, re repeat it rather than, you know, um, use that, that, that time slot on something brand new uh speaks highly it's just one of the one of the coolest places on earth happiness is oh uh wow i think happiness is getting the balance between um between confidence and hubris correct mm -hmm. um like the the right amount of comfort in your life is a very difficult thing to get right you know, like feeling like you're useful, feeling like you're growing um, and feeling like you're not, you know, not complacent. Uh, very difficult balance, very difficult little <laughs> narrow band. Um, and some people just decide to either always be comfortable. They never, they, they're never uncomfortable. Um, and they tend to end up, I think, inflicting a lot of harm on the people around them with that, you know, because they, they've they've been become so you know externalizing of everything. And then there's the never comfortable, always insecure. And you've you've seen these people like some of them are very, very, very successful, you know, titans of industry, who um, you can tell they're miserable, <laughs> uh, even in their success. And so. Um, I feel like I'm constantly kind of swinging back and forth through that equilibrium, like getting it right for a moment, like a spring bouncing back and forth. And like, I'm never, I'm never in the right place for very long. All right. Next question. In the next five years, I hope to. 
hmm, in the next five years, I hope to, um, first of all, on the professional front, like keep, keep growing P3. Like um, we're a really good thing for our clients. We're a really good thing for our employees. Like we were that, that style of business that I used to understand companies to be like the, 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 the old fashioned thing, like trading something to the world of value uh and and providing something of value to 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 the employees i don't think that's the way businesses are viewed so much uh maybe they never were but they certainly aren't viewed that way today like you know it's all about the the multiple and the exit and blah 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 um and um i just this is the single best thing i've ever been associated with in my career and i i, I hope to continue to um you know to grow it and grow it and grow it aggressively because it's, it's a good thing um so i hope that hope that happens um, I would like to personally be, um, you know, find, uh, more outlets like this, like podcasts and things like that, where, um, I think like sort of like some of my core strengths that I never would have thought years ago were my core strengths. Um, it's sort of like storytelling and emotional connection and those sorts of things. Like I'd like to increasingly have that be part of my career and, you know, and not just my what was it we talked about? Was it was it you and I on my podcast talking about like the different all the different jobs, the multi-job people? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Like slash careers. You had a freight <laughs> slash careers, right? And I said oh, I don't have one of those, and you said yes, you do. And I'm like, well, I don't know, maybe I do. <laughs> so I'd like the uh, the the slash parts of my career to sort of grow as a as a percentage of of what I do. Um, that that'd be good. All right, last rapid fire question. To me, curiosity is. Ah, okay. So, uh, first of all, I think curiosity is an excitement. Um, you know, an excitement about something that you, you don't know. Um, and, uh, like those things we were talking about earlier, like discovering the places that you were wrong or you were ignorant, um, and enjoying that. Um, and oftentimes even having this excitement about learning something um, that's in an area that might not be interesting on its own, right? Like it's one thing to be curious, you know, I don't know about, uh, your favorite musician or something, you know, um, but to be curious about, um, why, uh, a certain ad campaign has, uh, gone from being a, a strong performer to a poor performer, uh, rather than, just saying, well, that's just the way it is. And it's probably just noise, like being curious about, about that. You know, maybe there's, maybe there's something's changed. Maybe, maybe we made a mistake. Um, I don't know. That's just the first example that comes to mind. Um, but also with other people, like I, uh, I play this game with my kids. I'm not sure that it's taken with them. Um, I call it benefit of the doubt. Like, um, you know, I have, I have a teenage son, uh, and he's, he's a know-it-all <laughs> he's going through that phase. And, um, you know, and I, I went through it too, <laughs> you know, give him, give him the benefit of the doubt, but like, um, like he, he, he sees something that someone said or someone did and he goes, um, he immediately says, well, that's just so dumb. Uh, I said, well, but why would they do that? Let's, let's, let's pretend that they're not dumb, uh, first and see if we can figure out a way in which it all makes sense. Like, give, like try our hardest to understand why in their shoes, you know, they would be doing or saying that. And, and if, if we really go at that aggressively and then we fail to come up with something, we can fail to come up with a, with a, with a positive narrative that explains why they're doing what they're doing. 
okay, then maybe then we can sort of more tentatively, at least tentatively embrace like, okay, maybe that was a mistake, right? But don't go there first. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so um, yeah, like, isn't it cool to learn something that you didn't expect as opposed to scary? You know, lean into that. Well, thank you for taking the time to come on the Data Bytes podcast. This has been a fun conversation as always. I'm so happy that we had the opportunity to go through a history of Excel and learn about how we enable organizations with Power BI and appreciate your insightful tips and ignore the celebrities and, and fail a lot and try anyway. So thank you for all the work that you've done sharing your story with us today. I know there'll be a great benefit for lots of Oh, thank you for having me on. I know that um, it's a little bit longer recording than maybe what you usually do. So I appreciate you you uh, accommodating my more, uh, you know, non, <laughs> my, my more verbose style. <laughs> I love it. And oh, thank you to all our listeners for staying on with us until the end and making it here as a reminder. Stay curious and keep learning. If you enjoyed today's conversation on the Data Bytes podcast, we welcome you to continue the conversation and join our global community by becoming a member at womenindata.org. All Data Bytes listeners receive 20% off using the promo code DATABYTES20.